Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. We are in verse 27. We'll finish chapter 1 today. Some of you can breathe a sigh of relief that chapter 1 is almost finished. Maybe a shed a tear that, oh, I love, I love chapter 1 so much. But, uh, Tammy's a big Philippians fan. For years she asked when I was going to preach on Philippians. I said, I don't know. And then when I said I was going to preach on Philippians, she said, hey, can I teach on Philippians while you're preaching on Philippians? And I said, sure, that's fine with me. Um, so if you want to get the right version of all this, just go to Tammy's class on Wednesday and she'll fix everything that I screwed up along the way. <laughs> uh, we are going to read verses 27 through 30 and then look at them together. So let's read the text first. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted... On behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. And that's uh, the close of chapter 1. Um, a couple of opening comments here. In verse 27, you see where it says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. The word is used very scarcely in the New Testament. If you're reading out of the original King James you'll find the word conversation. Some of your translations will say manner of life. Conduct, manner of life is the appropriate thing here as you read through the verses that follow. It's not merely about your speech. It's not merely about how you talk. It's not merely about your conversation. It's about your conduct, the way you live. Um, again, many translations, the manner of your life, which makes sense, conduct. And it would seem to be an impossible task if we're honest, verse 27 says, only let your conduct, and by the way, the word only indicates that it's a small request, right? Only, you know, just this one thing, I don't need anything except just this one thing, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. That seems like an impossible ask to me. The more I learn about the gospel, which is not to say that it's an evolving story, but the more that I learn about me, and sometimes you, <laughs> and the kind of people we are, um, the more my understanding of what the gospel actually is grows and flourishes, that God would save sinners. Uh, sometimes, I'm sure, a child or a person could sing the verse, the song that we sung, you know, just there at the end. Um, the dying thief rejoiced to see, you know, this fountain in his day. And then the words, and there may I, though vile as he. Well, I'm, I'm not a murderer or a, you know, I don't think I have the reputation of a thief. That wouldn't go very well with being a pastor or any kind of a leader. But the more that I know what's in my heart and in my mind, and the more that I'm sensitive to my reactions to the world around me, the more that I realize, but uh, by the grace of God, that I'm not a murderer, or a thief, or a criminal, or 
the scourge of our society. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and to think that I should try to have the conduct of my life be worthy of the story of salvation that God has accomplished for me in Christ seems like an impossible request. We'll come back, we'll come back to that. Um, first, though, look at how the verse continues. Now, three things will be pointed out to us here. He says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, obviously, if he's absent, that you, here's the first thing, stand fast in one spirit. Second thing, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And third thing, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Now, just one comment because we won't focus on, on the last part. But what he's saying here is, is when Christians exercise a faithfulness that overcomes fear or terror, when Christians exercise faith, which comes from God, as opposed to a spirit of fear, which we are explicitly told is not from God, we demonstrate to those who would oppose us their own state in that they think that they can um, quiet us or stop us or control us or limit our behavior with fear. And we are demonstrating by our fearlessness that they do not have that power, which is a sign to them that the fact that fear governs their actions and they thought it could be applied to others, it's a sign that things are not good for them. In other words, we only use fear as a tactic because we know fear works with us. But when you realize fear does not work because God has completely you know, relieved these people of any concern or doubt about their future, then it's a sign that, wait a minute, I don't respond that way in a similar situation. Were I in this person's shoes, were I who am trying to silence, who am trying to shudder, I who, who am trying to get this person to stop and behave in a more culturally appropriate way, were I in this person's shoes, I would respond to the tactic that I am now applying to their life. I would be afraid or concerned or thoughtful or wise enough to shut my mouth and do my job and keep my head down. The fact that this person is clearly unmoved by the fear that I'm trying to apply is a sign to me that, wait a minute, they are responding wildly different. It's a sign of judgment in that they are afraid of loss and death and sustenance and what might happen to them if they lose a job or lose a friend or lose a connection or an outcast in society or put in prison. And clearly this person has a faith that overcomes that, and that's what Paul means here. When you respond not in terror, which isn't to say you don't feel fear. But when you respond to your fear with faith that overcomes fear, you represent to the rest of the world that the power of death, the power of starving, the power of suffering, the power of material loss doesn't have any power over you. And that's a sign. It has to be accounted for. This person is either crazy or they have something that I do not have. They have a confidence that I do not know. Now, on the three things, this is what Paul wants to hear and wants to witness in the life of the Philippian church. And I think it's safe to say, if he wants to witness it in the life of the Philippian church, he probably would hope the same for ours. I think this is applicable. One, 
that you stand fast in one spirit. The idea being steadfast or standing fast, that you are unmoved from the faith. That temptation, conflict, persecution, perhaps threats in the Philippian scenario, that whatever the world throws at you, whatever life throws at you, you stand fast with one mind. The one mind. Uh, what is this kind of group think that's being... To, that, you, that you are doctrinally on the same page and that what you believe about God, that shared common faith among the body of Christ, among your church, acts as a bulwark against whatever the world would throw at you individually. In other words, there is a, a right way to think about the world. And there's a right way to think about my position in the world. And there is a right way, there are godly ways to think about everything that comes at me in the world. And that we, with this right thinking, what we call right doctrine, what comes from the teaching of God's word and the receiving of God's word, with this mind, this thinking, this approach, you will stand fast in the faith. You won't be swayed. The Ephesians 4 version of this is you won't be tossed about like a ship on, a, on the sea with every wind of teaching or idea or doctrine or fantasy. And some people live like that. They think they've got a good grip on, you know, their life and on who they are and on what they're supposed to be doing. And then they'll see something on TV or they'll read something in a book or they'll, somebody will tell something and convince them in their life or they'll see something going even better for their neighbor and they'll be like, hey, what's my neighbor doing? And they'll just be, their whole life is just these swings back and forth. Well, maybe this. And then, well, no, maybe this. Or, well, no, I'll be like this. Or They're just tossed. Like, and that's the metaphor in Ephesians chapter 4. Like a, a little boat on a raging sea, and every wave is a different teaching, a different idea, and whoosh, the boat goes this way, and whoosh, the boat goes that way, and, and that's the opposite of what he's saying here. When I hear of you, Philippians, I would like to hear that you are standing fast, that you are immovable in the faith, standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, there's a bit of a play on words that is not so obvious in the English in this next one, the striving together for the faith of the gospel, because striving is a combative word. We talk about strife, for instance. We talk about you know, combat, about competition, about people fighting with each other. That's what striving is. Now, we have kind of hijacked the word striving to talk about striving for personal achievement. And in that sense, you're combating circumstances around you to try to get ahead. But strife, the word strife means conflict. But he is flipping it on its head and making it like a team struggle is the idea here. In other words, you are striving, yes, but you're not striving with each other. <laughs> you're striving with each other. You're striving together. In other words, we're, you're, we're pulling something in the same direction. We're not pulling something in opposite directions. We're not marked by conflict internally. We're marked by conflict, but conflict with our true and rightful enemy, Satan. And that conflict then is marked by what he says here, striving for the faith of the gospel. In other words, our effort, our work together, us all pulling the sled in the same direction, is to see people saved. It's to work in the gospel. It's, and all the outworkings of the gospel. But this is going to take work and striving and struggle and pulling. And it's not going to be one person working. It's going to have to be 
a together struggle. The third thing here, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. And I've spoken to this, but even in this, there's a commonality. Now, you see the commonality. You see the, the call to unity in the first two points, that you stand fast in one spirit, then with one mind striving together. You can hear the call of unity here, but even here, when he says in, in verse 3, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. In other words, we share common opponents here. Because the people or the obstacles or the things that oppose us, and this doesn't mean enemies. This is not merely talking about Satan. This is talking about opposition. These are not people that we hate. These are not people who are our enemies. It's just facing opposition. Jesus faced opposition. He didn't hate his opponents. He just faced them. Okay, so when you run against adversaries, you're supposed to be running against them for the sake of the gospel together with one another and not afraid. And perhaps if we don't share common opponents is because we don't, maybe we don't share a common goal. Maybe we're not striving together against the world to see salvation. These are the three things that Paul wants to see. Unity expressed in steadfastness and faith in striving together for the gospel, and not terrified by adversaries. Now, verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. Underline or think about that word granted here. It means gifted. For you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him. I think we would all take that. Christians would take that. It's a good gift but also to suffer for his sake. What a gift. What an interesting gift. To you it has been granted. And that word, I, I looked, checked it out in the original language. It means exactly what it's translated to mean. You have been granted. It is a gracious gift. It is something in your best interest. That's the idea. It is to do a favor for someone, to give graciously to someone. It's been granted to believe in in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, Paul knows that suffering does not sound much like a gift, and that's why he says, but also to suffer for his sake. In other words, there's, there's two sides to this coin, but it's all a gift. And notice it's a gift on behalf of Christ. It's not, you know, the world deciding that, you know, Justin's going to suffer this week. Well, for you, it's been granted on behalf of Christ to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then he says, having the same conflict you saw in me and now here is in me. In other words, you know that I'm, I'm suffering the same way. You know, I've, I'm, I've got the same gift. Now, what does this mean? Um, I've seen lots of movies more than my fair share over the years and read lots of books and I like a good story. And every once in a while in a story, there's a, a job that's got to be done that, um, that um, you know, nobody wants to do. Sometimes in a war movie or something like this, there's a, there's a mission that we've got to undertake and nobody's coming back. And that's kind of clear from the outset, right? And sometimes, and for the most part, I like these movies. I like the idea of doing something honorable because it has to be done. I, I mean, I, something, there is something about that that is appealing, which is why that story keeps showing up in, in stories. You know, the, the, the motive is there. Okay. But the part where the story always feels a little cheesy to me is when they select the person who's going to go do the suicide mission, okay, who's going to go, you know, plunge into the 
jaws of the enemy or whatever it may be. And they, they present it as if it were a great honor. Now, I can get on board with doing what has to be done, but I struggled to swallow the idea that, and, and this is a great thing for you. I'm like, well, you know, it's not really a great thing for me. You know, I mean, that, I don't know if you've ever had those experiences in the movie. I could give you examples. I won't. But I could give you examples where it's like, eh, okay, let's just fast forward to the next part where the brave thing is done because this whole, you know, what a privilege it is to be selected to be this person is just losing me a little bit, you know? I think I would be one of those guys who'd be like, look, I'll do this thing, but let's not pretend that it's a, you know, it's a great reward, okay? Um, is that what this is? Is this the kind of suffering that God is saying, hey, this is a great gift for your benefit, that you're going to go and be persecuted. You might even be martyred. What a great thing. And it's like just, hey, you should be so grateful for the opportunity. Is that what this is? In a way, I would ask, because God is sovereign, he doesn't have to put any of us in those situations. It's not like the movie where something has to be done that God can't work through. It's, It's not like that. In a way, I think what we're really asking is, is God a masochist? Is he someone who takes pleasure in suffering and pain? in humiliation. In Revelation chapter 21, we get an answer to that. I'll read to you verses 3 through 5. It's at the very end of your Bibles. Now listen, this is, this is heaven for all intents and purposes. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. So this is the state of eternity where God is dwelling with us. That's, again, for all intents and purposes, what we call heaven, okay? God himself will be with them and be their God. How is this, how is this existence described? Well, verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, and John's watching this to give it to us, and he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You write this down, John, and make sure the church knows it. These are faithful and true words. So God does not enjoy suffering pain, tears, sorrow, death. God does not enjoy that. He doesn't enjoy it for His people. He doesn't enjoy it for the world. And it it is not our existence. And this is what makes this is what makes this kind of suffering different from the guy who plunges into the battle line knowing that he's going to die. The guy who's given the privilege to be the sacrifice to the dragon or whatever it is. I mean, this is what makes this different is that the Christian has been promised by a sovereign God that there is no death for him or her. There is no death. There may be suffering. But on the other side of suffering, there will be reward, eternal reward, a reward that will never be robbed, a reward that will be more valuable than what you have, more valuable than what you know. Jesus uses the expression, who'll not be, there'll be no one who suffers persecution who won't be uh, repaid a hundredfold. <laughs> Now, 
it, I'll grant you this, it does take faith to believe that. Just as it takes faith, as John was told to write in verse 5, write, for these words are true and faithful. He's saying, the church needs to believe me on this. That takes faith. Why? Because when I think of great reward, I think of huge bank accounts and great possessions and great security on this earth. That's, that's the world that I live in. I am, I am a time being. I live my life knowing that there is a beginning and there will be an end. And I have been trained and conditioned by the world to value what I can see and touch <laughs> because that's all I got. I don't have what I can't see and touch. That's, that's, that's life in this world. And we are very skeptical when someone promises us something that we'll get someday down the road, aren't we? Can we? Yeah, for good reason. There are lots of people who would exploit us by promising us something that we're going to get way down the road. And we know from experience, from tragic stories, from the manipulations of other people, perhaps even ourselves, those things often don't come. But God is faithful and true. And it requires faith to believe a faithful and true God. That the reward that we get, what, what are the words of Paul? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor can we imagine the riches of God that are coming to us in heaven from Christ. I have to trust that, and I do. Third part. I want to circle back to the first verse here. First verse, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I got to tell you, I say this one for the end because this is where most of my thinking was going through the passage this week. And I told you we'd come back to it. What does it mean? What does it mean? Have you ever thought about this? What does it mean to be worthy of something? I mean, inside the word worthy is the word worth. So there's a, it, what it is, is it's a valuation. In other words, you can't answer the question of whether or not you are worthy of something or something is without considering the value of what it is you're looking at. That's what it is. Worthy is an estimation of worth. For instance, if you need a new car or if you need a new, a new truck or whatever, you're, you are going to do an evaluation and you're going to make a decision. What is worthy of my money? How much money is it worth? You know, I've got something I've saved. I've got what is appropriate. Every time you go to the store, you're asking yourself that question. Is this worth this? Is this appropriate? We do this all the time. And for almost all of the things that we think about and put thought into, it's material worth. And we're valuing it with money. We even use money as a valuation for things that are not purely material because we know, and you've heard this before, time is money. Like, yeah, uh, it would be cheaper for me to buy the gas and put it in the mower and do all of this, but it's going to take me a lot of time. Is my time worth more than what it would cost me to pay? You see, we do these calculations all the time. So I'd make that calculation when I change the oil. Now, some of you say, I change my oil in 10 minutes. For me, it is an all-day project. Okay, we there is a time estimation out there. What is worth this? And mostly that comes down to material. But there are things in life that we talk about the worthiness of. And we have to do these evaluations and they're not material. And these are usually the serious things. I mean, if you think buying a car is serious, this is on another, another level. 
Usually it has to do with the things that we love or the things that we care about. Um, where my mind jumped to with this, and I'll tell you why in a minute, it's cheesy and it's okay to think less of me, but where my mind jumped to with this is, is the idea of a father who has a daughter and a young man wants to marry that girl. And let's say the young man goes to the father and says, I love your daughter, I want to marry her. Now that dad, if he's a good dad, has to do an evaluation. He's got, and what he's asking is, not merely is this a good match or is this a good fit. Try as he might, the evaluation really is, is this young man worthy of my daughter? That's a tough question to answer. <laughs> Some of you have, answered, have had to answer that question. I have not answered that question yet, but that's a tough question to answer. And this is where it's going to get sappy and cheesy, but I, you know, it's just me and who I am. I, uh, I will confess that, that the movie that the ladies watched not long ago, the Pride and Prejudice movie, I like that one. I like that movie. Yeah, I like that. It's one, it's one of, I don't like a lot of girly movies. My wife, she'll defend my manhood up to that point, but I like that one. I like that movie. I like the dialogue. It's fast. The dialogue is fast, and the vocabulary is all over. The, I, I like that movie, and I like the story of the movie. I, I like it. Now, Allison then tried to sucker me into watching this marathon public television Pride and Prejudice movie. I got lost there. I was out on that. But the one sitting Pride and Prejudice, I, li I like that movie. And, um, you know, you don't have to know the movie to relate to the, one of the final scenes of the movie, which is this young woman going to her dad and saying, hey, I want to marry this guy. And she's trying, to tell, she's trying to tell her dad, who doesn't have a particularly high opinion of the guy that she's talking about, she's trying to reveal, disclose to her dad why this person actually is worthy of her, why, why he should allow this. And, you know, and a part of it is for me, you know, it's Donald Sutherland, and I'm, I mean, if you, I mean, this is like, you know, this is Kiefer Sutherland's dad, I mean, this is, this is Jack Bauer's dad, this is a big deal, some of you get that reference and some of you don't, but he does a good job with this, and in the acting, and he says, I've got the quote here, he said, he said, I cannot believe that anyone can deserve you, that's what he tells his daughter. And, you know, I'm a dad with, with girls, and this is where, you know, they start to feel it right here in my eye and be like, eh. He says, I cannot believe that anyone can deserve you, but it seems, he says with a smile on his face, he says, it seems I am overruled. He says, so I hardly give my consent. But then he says something, and this is the, this is the one I remember. He says, I could not have parted with you, my Lizzie, to anyone less worthy. Which, which is a father who has an exceptionally high opinion of his daughter. And what he's saying here is, the bar for a young man to be worthy of you, my dear, is high, is high. And I'm not even sure this guy cried. I cannot believe anyone would deserve this. And, and, and when I read the verse here, and I thought about valuation of worthy, that came to mind. And, and I, would, I would apply it this way. A young man who really wants to marry a young woman should aspire to be found worthy of her. 
That's honorable. That's appropriate. A young man who really wants to marry a young woman should have that kind of whatever it takes attitude. I want to be worth. I. I don't want. I don't want her to settle for me. I want to. I want to live up to that, right? And we can acknowledge that. But by the same token, I would say, a Christian who really wants to know and experience the promises of God should aspire to be found worthy of the gospel. And you don't receive the promises of God because you've done great works. But a Christian who aspires, a person who can raise their hand and say, I am a son of the living God. I am a daughter of the living God. I have been adopted into his family. He has claimed me. Someone who would aspire to raise their hand publicly and say that should aspire to live a life worthy of the story of that adoption. But there's more. When you think about it, the gospel in and of itself, when I say the gospel, I mean the story that God sent His only Son into the world to save sinners We're told that is a faithful and trustworthy saying, worthy of all remembrance. The story of God sending His only begotten Son into the world to save sinners is a valuation of you. It's one thing for me to say the gospel is worthy of a life (laughs) up here and I should strive to live that life. But it's a completely different thing to think about. The fact that God sent His Son into the world to die for me demonstrates His valuation of knowing me. Which is... God values you to the point that He was willing to send His only Son into the world to die for you. In order to know you. That's his valuation of you. How much more so then should we, and this is pretty much a repeated theme in the Bible, how much more so should we then strive to live in a way that's worthy of him? But there's more. When God sent his only son into the world to die for you and place that very high, I mean, look. Um... If I am going to send my son or any of my children into a dangerous situation where great harm might happen to them, I had better be darn sure that the business that they have there is worth that risk, is worth the price that it's going to cost. I'm not sending my kids into some dangerous situation unless it's worth it. That means I would have to place a high value on whatever they're doing there to make it a wise thing for me as their father to say, yeah, sure, go on. You get where I'm, where I'm at with this, right? Many of you are parents. This is not hard to imagine if you're not a parent. If you think about the value that God placed on your life, that he sent Jesus into the world to do what Jesus did, and then here is the mind-blowing part. 
Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. God valued you like that while you were his enemy (laughs) and living a life with complete disregard for anything that he said. To me. I, I just... If you are not a Christian here today, you should be moved by the fact that the God of all creation, I mean, it should be almost suspicious to you that the God of all creation would have an interest in you. Like, you are, it's fair to be skeptical over that. You have to imagine a God who is not constrained the way that we are constrained in order to get there. In other words, you have to imagine a God who is not limited in his knowledge. There are only so many relationships I can handle. There are only so many people whose names I can remember. There are only so much time that I have to spend with any one person. I am extremely limited, okay? You have to imagine a God who is unlimited because only a God who is unlimited could place such a high personal value on every one of us. But he does. And when I look at the world, I see a God like that. I see an unlimited God who is not constrained the way that I am constrained, who with the ability to know and to love each person has decided to do so and demonstrate that love in Christ. And if you are not a Christian, that should compel you to know this God. This Father who has given His only Son to save you will surely be a good Father to you. He will not be quick to cast you out at your failure. The cost that he has paid should compel you to trust in the Father that he promises to be. One last uh, comment here, maybe two. When the people of um, Israel saw, you remember this? The I always like this verse because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Remember that one? You can, if you can't memorize Bible verses, you can memorize one. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. When the context here is Jesus is weeping over the grave of his friend Lazarus, who has died. And when the people see Jesus weeping, it says this. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. The people marveled at how much Jesus loved Lazarus because he wept for him. What do you make of the crucifixion? Aren't, isn't blood worth more than tears? Isn't pain worth more than sorrow? I mean, if you, if you see the anguish of Jesus over the death of Lazarus, what do you make over what you see at the cross? This is the valuation that God put on your life. To be your father instead of your judge. To know you. And I want to encourage you in this because it's right to ask a Christian. So if you look at your life right now, are you trying to live a life worthy of the gospel? It's right to ask that question. But I would like to inject grace and comfort into that question because that's a very convicting question. In a way, I would be surprised if anyone with a clear conscience could raise their hand and say, oh yeah, I'm living a life worthy of the gospel. That's a tough one, right? 
It's a good question, a convicting question, but I would like to inject grace and hope into that. The same God who placed the value of the gospel on your life has promised to be your Father who loves you and who over a process of sanctification will transform you into a person that you're not today. It's not like, hey, I saved you. Now you're on your own. Go figure out how to live a sinless life. It's, look, I bought your life so that I could be your father, so that I could adopt you into my family. Now watch what I can do. Watch what I'll do. You just trust me. Watch where this takes you. That's a father that you can trust that's a father that we can trust. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, it seems like every week I begin this closing prayer with the testimony that we love you. It is both a statement of fact and a commitment ongoing. We love you, Father. Please help us to continue in our love for you. And we could all raise our hands with the prophet and say, all we like sheep have gone astray. And we thank you for your discipline and your care in our life, but even more so for the graciousness of your mercy and that you don't get angry with us when we fail, that you're not filled with wrath at us when we mess up, that your wrath was satisfied at the cross. Father, we thank you that you are a better father than every one of our earthly fathers. With their failings, some very visible, some not, give us a vision of a father who is perfect, who is gracious, who can be stern, but who is not cruel. Father, if there are those here today who have not professed faith in you, who have not experienced justification, who stand legally condemned before you this morning, help them to trust in your nature as a father that you will patiently work in their life if they'll only trust in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and commit to following you. We read this morning that you have granted it to the Philippians and to us to believe in Jesus and to suffer, but first to believe. Father, please give anyone here this morning who is not a Christian Please give them the gift of faith. Open their eyes spiritually in a way that their hard hearts cannot do. A surgery they themselves cannot perform. And help them to see in you not a cruel and unjust tyrannical deity. But a father who loves them and has paid a great price to know them. Help them to see, when they look into your word, salvation. Not a foreign salvation. Not a distant salvation. Not a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. 
for the salvation that is at their door even now. Thank you for the blessings that you've given us. Thank you for the privilege to share in these blessings materially through tithes and offerings. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.